This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delight. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every Leader of the Opposition who crucially never made it to number 10. From Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage. Leader of the pack. First up on this episode, Patrick Maguire spoke to Nigel about Margaret Beckett. And I think the first thing to say is that it's often said, and we've heard this discussion in, in recent months, um, about uh, the Labour Party not ever having had uh, a woman leader. Well, actually, that's not that's not really correct, because uh, both Margaret Beckett and Harriet Harman have served um, as leader of the Labour Party. Um, and when Margaret Beckett became leader in May 1994, um, the Labour Party's constitution says that when there is a vacancy uh, for leader, when uh, the leader has either died or, or resigned, um, the deputy becomes leader of the Labour Party. Not so acting Margaret, leader or interim leader, the leader. leader. The leader, exactly. And um, one of the interesting things, um, I mean, Matt did a, an interview with Margaret Becker earlier this year, uh, which I think you can hear on um, on the Redbox um, podcast. Um, and uh, she says then that she had the option of doing two things at that point as well. She could have um, remained as leader until the party conference uh, in the autumn, um, when there would have been, uh, you know, the annual election of the leader, um, and she could then have remained as, as leader of the party until then. Um, she stood for leader, so she could have used that that time to sort of run in, in the leadership contest as well. But the other thing is she was deputy leader of the Labour Party and so she could have remained as deputy as well um, and not had a contest for, for deputy. Um, but she decided to, to have a contest for deputy leader as well. And she, she, um, stood, she stood for both, didn't she? She stood, she stood for the leadership for both, exactly. and yeah, the which, deputy leadership and then didn't go particularly well in either, did it? 
No, exactly. And um, I mean, like um, John Prescott actually also stood in, in the leadership and deputy leadership, um, which doesn't sort of connote a huge amount of confidence. I mean, we're looking at the sort of dynamics of leadership elections today. And it's, if you're saying, you know, I'm definitely standing for leader and I'm definitely going to win. Um, and you're also standing for deputy just in case. Uh, it's not perhaps the best look. But no, she she uh, lost in both of those. Um, and in the interview she gave earlier this year, she she said um, she, she knew she wasn't going to win uh, in either of them. She said she thought that the Labour Party wanted a new team. So uh, she's interesting, but, but I think it's worth saying that, you know, she was leader of the Labour Party for those um, two months before uh, Tony Blair became um, leader. Um, and so, you know, we have to be a bit careful when we're referring to the sort of the um, the Labour Party's lack of a, an elected uh, woman leader. It has had actually two, and Margaret Beckett was the first. So Smith, when well, John Smith died in 1994, uh, Margaret Beckett wasn't, wasn't in there for a terribly long time. Um, how did she distinguish herself uh, during that short period? Did, was, there, was there anything to do other than keeping a steady hand on the tiller and allowing for a transition of power? Or uh, did she, you know, what, what, what should we, will we remember that short time for? Well, she did have um, a set of national elections uh, that, that, that took place while she was leader of the opposition. Um, the, the, the European Euro Parliament elections. The European Surely. Parliament there elections. There you go. Yes. Outnerding uh, each other this morning, Nigel. Absolutely. Uh, in, in 1994. So if you, if you look at those ones, and they were the, the best results that Labour had had. Um, in uh, uh, European elections, um, you know, since they since they began, so um, she did very well in those, and so you know, you could argue that perhaps uh, in terms of electoral performance, she had a good claim to uh, for her leadership um, to say that she'd led the party to a, to a great success. And it wasn't just that she was sort of um, the acting leader at the time or the interim leader at the time; um, she had, as deputy leader, been essentially the campaign coordinator. You know, one of the roles that she had taken on mm. uh, when she was um, Smith's deputy was as a sort of campaign coordinator. So she. She had really been running those elections. Um, so I think, you know, you can credit credit her with that. You know, there are leaders who serve for a short period of time and, and never have, um, you know, any sets of elections, never face the electorate and, uh, and you can't judge them. She does at least have that. And, look, and that's a very tricky thing to do unexpectedly when your uh, your your principal, your, your leader has um, sadly uh, left the job at nobody's choosing. And just, and just briefly, Nigel, Margaret Beckett was very unique in the Labour government that followed, in that she was one of the very few people to have served in the last Labour government under Jim Callaghan as a minister, who then went to serve at a pretty high level in Cabinet, didn't she? And, you know, she never became Prime Minister. She never became a permanent mm. leader of the Labour Party, but she did uh, reach one of the very highest offices in the land, didn't she? Absolutely, yes. I mean, becoming Foreign Secretary, she was the first female Foreign Secretary, um, which, uh, you know, on its own puts her um, in the history books as having done that. She only did it for a year, um, so she was um, she was Tony Blair's last um, Foreign Secretary and then, and then lost that, that, that job. But yeah, I think that, that is a significant part of it. That was Patrick McGuire speaking to Nigel Fletcher about Margaret Beckett, who announced she's standing down at the next election. I spoke to her about that in March of this year, which you can find by searching on the Redbox podcast too. Next, though, on this episode, we turn our attention to the Times' very own William Hague. He's another one of these leaders who sort of, if we look back at all of the ones that um, we've looked at from the start of this, of this series, um, so many of them had uh, the sort of job as leader of the opposition as one of, um, their sort of minor accomplishments and they'd gone on to do better things or had previously done better things. And um, and William Hague kind of fits that pattern. Um, it's, it's quite ironic almost that he was such a fan of sort of Pitt the Younger um, and uh, wrote a biography of him that, um, you know, having been leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party at the age of 36 in 1997, um, he then goes on and, of course, has a, a much more distinguished career later on as, as Foreign Secretary. 
Um, and I think he'd probably admit that the um, time he spent as leader of the opposition wasn't pro- probably wasn't his finest hour. Although, because I've interviewed him a few times about this, and he's always sort of made the point, well, someone had to do mm. it. After the Conservatives slumped that that uh, um, terrible defeat in 1997, somebody had to step forwards. And uh, maybe wiser heads knew that, that that was not the moment to do it. Hence why he is, you know, he's very young at the time as well. Mm. Uh, hence why he ended up with a job, because you couldn't not have a leader of the opposition. Yeah, and it's it, you hear that. I mean, um, Neil Kinnock says the same thing that you know, um, as, as he said, you know, some some bugger had to do it, and uh, and it just sort of you know he, he spent sort of eight eight years doing it. Haig um, had to do it for for four years, so maybe he got off lightly. Um, but th- there's, I think, you know, he's described it himself as working the night shift. You know, you've just lost an election uh, to Labour by sort of a historic uh, landslide. Um, and as you say, he was almost the only person left. It's kind of like previous landslides we've, we've seen where, um, you know, Labour in 1931, where we've talked about sort of where, you know, Clem Attlee and uh, George Lansbury were pretty much the only people left with any experience. And Haig had been a fairly junior cabinet minister. He was Secretary of State for Wales. Um, and there was a moment during the, the election night at Conservative Central Office where someone sort of came up to him and said, you know, effectively, you know, you, sh- you, you need to stay here and you need to be ready because it looked like, you know, Michael Howard and other people, there was, a you know, some results coming in where that sort of level of swing could have wiped out sort of all of the senior cabinet ministers who would have been um, uh, potential leaders. And of course, we, we had Michael Portillo, who was expected to be the next leader, um, dramatically defeated in, in Enfield. So there was this moment where it's kind of, uh, and he's described this himself as well as being like kind of the, the sort of junior officer on the on the bridge, sort of being told, you know, all of the crews being wiped out and you might have to take control, sir. And the um, the, the question of uh, of whether or not he was any good, I mean, he makes the point he was very good at doing PMQs, but ultimately... You know, if you look at the election, was the Labour Party was it one seat? Was it, the, the, the overall result in twenty yeah, the Conservatives a, made a net gain of one of yeah. one in two thousand and one. I suppose the question is, if it had been someone else, it could have been worse, could it? Yeah, I, I think that I think that's true. I mean, you know, there's always this sort of assumption that well, you know, things are as bad as they can get. Well, they can always get a lot worse. And of course, in um, in the case of of Labour in nineteen eighty three, you know, they they lost um, to Thatcher in in not a, a massive landslide in seventy nine, which you want a modest majority, and then they they lost by a landslide in eighty three. It could have got a lot worse. That was the story of William Hague. Next up in our trawl of leaders of the opposition who never made it to the top job is the quiet man, Ian Duncan Smith. He was um, the son of a, an RAF um, flying ace uh, and then um, was educated uh, at Sandhurst uh, and um, joined the, the army. So he had a, a military background um, and that's something which uh, sort of transferred its way into his, his leadership uh, of the Conservative Party. And one of my favourite uh, anecdotes about him is that how one of his um, advisors um, was actually called, uh, was, was given the title of aide-de-camp to the leader. <laughs> uh, which I don't think is a, a position which has um, has been replicated in other, other leaders of the opposition's offices. That's quite um, something. It, it is, yeah. I mean, I, I remember at the time sort of thinking it was a, a nickname. It was actually the title he was given. Um, but um, so he um, was first elected to the House of Commons in 1992. And like a lot of uh, the leaders that we've looked at, he made his name in opposition. But unlike a lot of them, he made his name in opposition to 
his party's government. Um, he was a, a rebel against uh, John Major's government over Maastricht. Um, and this was something that caused him quite a lot of problems later on when he called on the party to unite behind the leader. A lot of people not unreasonably pointed out that he hadn't really, <laughs> a bit like Jeremy Corbyn, really, uh, in, in many ways. Um, uh, he, he wasn't really able to call upon the loyalty of his, his backbenchers who pointed out the fact that he hadn't done the same when, when he was on the backbenchers. So he was um, first on the front bench under uh, William Hague. Um, he, he'd been on the backbenches all the way through the Conservative government um, and then was first promoted into the shadow cabinet by William Hague, first as shadow uh, social security secretary and then as um, shadow secretary of state for defence. And uh, he came to be leader. Um, and if you can imagine such a thing, we've had quite a lot of um, these instances where things <laughs> seem to rhyme historically. Um, he was elected by the Conservative Party grassroots membership on account of his right wing views, um, despite not having a huge amount of support in the parliamentary party. Um, and of course, for him, that didn't go um, so well. But um, I think most famous um, for some of his rather cringeworthy um, conference speeches, um, including one where uh, he tried to acknowledge one of the complaints that we made about him, that he wasn't making much of an impact um, by, by making what's uh, now infamously known as his quiet man speech. I say this, the quiet man is here to stay and he's turning up the volume. ...time targets. What is, he's shake his head, that's what he's just said, I heard him say it. I mean, I know he's a quiet man, but I heard that. <laughs> That's Tony Blair there, take it. So you're right, so there was the do not underestimate the determination of a yes. quiet man, and everyone did underestimate him. So then he <laughs> he said that the uh, uh, the quiet man was turning up the volume uh, in his 2003 party conference speech. Didn't do much good, though, did it? No, not really. And it's, it's one of those things, it's a bit like, I mean, we had this with, with Liz Truss and her infamous conference speech in, in 2014, but, you know, you, you make a kind of a really cringeworthy conference speech and it's sort of best almost to sort of forget about it and then make a better one the next year. But then the following year when he was under even more pressure um, from his backbenchers and from, from the press, um, with sort of disastrous personal ratings, he decides to go back to it and sort of says, you know, this, this ludicrous phrase, you know, having said this rather sort of odd thing about never underestimate the determination of a quiet man, which he kind of sort of whispered in his first conference speech, then sort of coming back saying he's turning up the volume, which may, literally made no sense at all. Um, and it was in that conference speech as well, of course, that um, there were the sort of orchestrated standing ovations, um, which I think Newsnight um, pointed out that there was somebody sort of encouraging people to stand up every five minutes um so a really sort of disastrous um, conference speech he also wasn't very good at pmqs either um and this is something which um i know we sort of um, william hager spoken a lot about the fact that you know over his four years he was seen as being really good at prime minister's questions and it did him no good whatsoever and so people sort of think well pmqs doesn't matter well once you get somebody who can't really do it then the mps decide <laughs> it does actually matter quite a lot um if you're sort of in a fairly dire situation um it's about the only thing that will cheer them up once and a week. I suppose week. that's and the point, isn't it? William Hague didn't do any good, but it might have done because things might have been in it even worse uh, yeah. on his watch. And actually, uh, Ian Duncan Smith basically came along with all the same problems. You had uh, Labour in the ascendancy still under Tony Blair. Uh, the Conservatives still didn't really know what to do about him, but he also wasn't very good at PMQs. Yeah, and so you know when your um, when your constituency effectively is your MPs, you do need to cheer them up. And after this um, th this change that's been made under William Hague to give members the the right to elect the leader, you can have this situation, which we have now seen several times, where a party membership, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn or whether it's Liz Truss 
elects a leader who doesn't have that support on their back benches, it's a problem. And so, yeah, not being good at PMQs meant that every Wednesday there was this muttering after PMQs by his MPs in the tea room saying, you know, he's really not cutting it. Um, so that didn't do him much good at all. And of course, he is now the only example um, of a, a Conservative leader uh, who has um, fallen as a result of a, a, a vote of no confidence, unlike uh, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, who faced um, those, those votes of no confidence and then resigned sort of some time afterwards. He actually sort of toughed it out to the, to the, the vote and lost it, even though he was uh, told by um, the whips and by the 1922 committee, you know, you're going to lose. But he, he decided to go down fighting um, rather than step down. So he is the only leader who's, who's fallen under those provisions. That was the story of Ian Duncan Smith. And he passed on the Tory leadership baton to Michael Howard. Cleaner hospitals, more police, lower immigration, lower taxes. No, I can't remember. It was like the anyway, but yes, there was... <laughs> It turned it turned out people weren't thinking what he was thinking, or not enough of them anyway. So yeah, so who 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 was not thinking what people people were thinking? Who is this week's leader of the opposition? It's Michael Howard, who took over from Ian Duncan Smith uh, in October or into November of two thousand and three after. Um, IDS was brought down by uh, his own MPs. And it, it's quite an interesting story, really, because Michael Howard had sort of returned uh, from the backbenches uh, to Ian Duncan Smith's shadow cabinet. He, he stood down in uh, 1999 after sort of uh, failing fairly abysmally when he stood for the leadership the first time. Um, he came fifth out of five candidates, which I think we have to conclude is is pretty bad um, in 1997. And the fact that he then became the leader in an unopposed election, we're getting quite used to changes of conservative leadership and um, leaders becoming leader without a uh, without a vote. But this was quite a turnaround, really, that um, he was seen as the the obvious candidate by that time, having having failed previously. Was that because he was the obvious candidate with all of the skills uh, necessary, or he just had fewer reasons not to give it to him than anyone else? There was, there was so, you know, Ken Clark, the perpetual runner in Tory leadership contests, you know, clearly was more... Uh, pro-Europe than others, uh, you know, others who'd been around too long or they were considered too uh, wet behind the ears and actually going into potentially a third election uh, defeat up against Tony Blair in 2005. Was he just, the, the, the was Michael Howard essentially the candidate that, that, that had the least opposition? Yeah, and I think also, I mean, in, in politics, it's always sort of um, luck and timing. And he, he was in the right place at the right time. As I say, he was brought back by Ian Duncan Smith really as a kind of um, sort of senior grandee, just of bolster his leadership as a shadow chancellor. And it just meant that you had him in, in position as, as somebody who was, uh, as you say, had, had the fewest enemies and somebody who had just been seen as a very respected grandee, very competent in, in, in the role. And the Conservative Party at that time was pretty desperate. I mean, they'd lost by another landslide in, in 2001. And then Ian Duncan Smith's leadership was so disastrous that they, they faced the prospect of doing even worse at the next election. So I think, you know, we've seen this before um, in the Conservative Party that, you know, they, they get to a point where they just, they have to change the leader. They think that's the only way of doing it. But we've seen in, in recent um, leadership um, squalls, really, in the Conservative Party, they haven't had somebody they could coalesce around as being an obvious candidate. Uh, we saw that with Boris Johnson. And um, and it was it was a real difficulty for them that, that they couldn't move against him until they had somebody that they could uh, could agree on. And similarly, actually, uh, with Liz Truss, it wasn't obvious 
who was going to take over. And so I think Michael Howard being there as the senior grandee as <clears throat> a shadow chancellor at the time, it made it far easier um, for them to vote no confidence in Ian Duncan Smith. And it's perhaps a lesson as well that um, sort of grandees should, should stick around a bit because, you know, you, you never know when you're going to be in the right place at the right time. It's a good point, actually, you made, because, I mean, let, let, let's reflect a bit on his uh, his career. Mm. He was responsible. He was the minister. I mean, not all of it positive. He was the minister responsible for the poll tax. He had loads of trouble at the uh, when he was Home Secretary, of course, on that famous interview being asked by mm -hmm. uh, Jeremy Paxman, did you threaten to overrule... What was his name, Derek? Um, Derek Lewis, Derek yes, Lewis. The, did you the head of the prison service. But he'd had a... You arguably, you know, became an MP in 1983. By the time you get to 2003, 20 uh, years later, he'd had a, a career that the other politicians would would bite your hand off for. So, you know, you're right, the, the, the process of sort of hanging about in wondering what might turn up uh, mm. is precisely why he suddenly found himself in the, in the, in the leadership role. Yes, I mean, like, like most of the leaders we talk about who didn't make it to number 10, you know, he is, uh, he has a career that, uh, that aside from being leader of the of the party is, is quite senior, you know, having been Home Secretary um, bef before that. He actually came into politics quite late uh, or into Parliament quite late. He was trying for many years to find a seat. Um, there's a very good um, biography of him by uh, Michael Crick, where he, he sort of goes into the his his early history and his time trying to, trying to find a seat. Um, and there's, I think there's there's almost some suggestion that um, he perhaps faced some prejudice. He he, he is. We, we shouldn't forget um, the first practicing uh, Jewish leader of the Conservative Party um, had a lot of discussion recently about uh, Rishi Sunak um, uh, representing a, a sort of uh, a first in, in British politics as prime minister um, and discussion of, of Benjamin Disraeli. Disraeli, is, of course, as we as we know, converted to Christianity. Michael Howard, had he become prime minister, um, would have been the, the first Jewish prime minister since Disraeli and the first practicing um, Jew as well. So he is, I think we have to remember, also is the son of immigrants. Um, he made a lot of that during his time as, as leader. He made, a, um, I think, his final speech as, as leader of the party where he, um, he said that uh, before the election, he said that he wanted to give back to Britain what, what Britain had given to him. And so th there was a lot of, of sort of um, sort of rather... Um, sort of converse things about Michael Howard. He was seen as a very sort of hardliner, particularly as Home Secretary. Um, and yet he has this very interesting backstory um, as somebody who um, had uh, sort of been to grammar school. He made a great deal of that um, in his first Prime Minister's Questions against Tony Blair, where he contrasted that with, with Blair being a public yeah. school boy yeah. um, and that kind of thing. So um, he'd had this quite interesting um, backstory. And then his time in, in government, as you say, uh, not exactly the, uh, the record that you'd want to uh, to have to defend, he was uh, he was the minister who presided over Section Twenty Eight and the poll tax. I mean, that was you know, and that was in the space of like two years, I think. So that was not something that uh, that that, that uh, was very easy for him, um, and that came back to haunt him uh, when he was was leader. But and the famous interview with with Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight, actually, that came in nineteen ninety seven during the uh, the run up to the leadership election. It's probably that that that, that did for him. <laughs> uh, it was some time after he he'd had the the issue with Derek Derek which was, I think, in 1993 when he was Home Secretary. So it was some time after that um, that that came it's up. It's interesting but... how the memory sort of merges what you think about something that was happening happening that week. Uh, but just finally, then, Nigel, I suppose perhaps the biggest impact that uh, Michael Howard's uh, leadership as the leader of the opposition had on the country 
was what happened after he lost the uh, mm. election in 2005 and essentially gifted the nation, for good or ill, David Cameron. Yes, David Cameron and George Osborne. Because, yes, I mean, this is, uh, in a sense, the, the triumph of succession planning in, in British politics, which you know doesn't get done an awful lot. But he was very... Um, canny in, in what he did after the election. Firstly, the reason there was such a long delay was that he actually wanted to reform the uh, the party's leadership election. I think we might actually look back at that as a missed opportunity. Um, some people certainly would um, to try and change the, the rules that have been introduced by uh, William Hague to give the party members um, the final vote. That didn't work. And so the party kind of rebelled against that. And so they went back to the, a contest on the previous rules. Michael Howard there, and that brings us to the end of this episode, rounding up our leaders of the opposition. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next one. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.